Well, it is good to see some familiar faces and some faces that we haven't seen for a little while today. You're going to see Jessica Melcher here with us today, as well as, as George and Joanne traveling from various places. Welcome. So good to see you. Um, I'd like to just begin today, before we turn to God's Word, just like to give you a little bit of an update. Um, several have been asking about the sabbatical that's coming up and uh, when we're leaving, and hard to believe, but we'll, we'll be actually leaving in two weeks from tomorrow. And so uh, that's coming up very fast. Um, so just a little bit about where, where we're at. Uh, we, we did make some changes to our plans because Japan and Thailand just haven't opened up yet. And so we will still be planning on going to France and spending some time with the Beckers, one of our missionary families. And then we picked a couple churches in Italy that we're going to spend a little time with on Sundays. And we're going to be spending some time over in Piedmont as well as Tuscany. And uh, just focusing on just getting some rest, spending time, time in God's Word and prayer, and just getting some time together, Angie and myself. And so, um, so a few changes to what we planned on originally. Uh, this is Plan D, I think, that we're finally on. But um, I need a sabbatical from planning a sabbatical, I think. Um, but um, with that, uh, we just appreciate your continued prayers as we make final preparations for, for this sabbatical, uh, but also while we're there. A um, couple updates for you. Uh, some people have just been asking about contacting us. We're not going to be in contact. Uh, people have been asking about contacting us, uh, but we've had a, a Facebook um, group page that, we, that we've started, and we'd just like to welcome you to that. Some of you have seen that online. Uh, we're not going to be in correspondence a lot while we're gone. Um, of the nature of the sabbatical, but we will be making some posts. And so if you want to be a part of that, uh, you can just ask about that and we would be glad to get you connected into that group and so you can see some updates while, while we're away. And then also, um, some of you have asked about um, what's going on with our kids. Hard to believe they're, they're all adults now. Our youngest is 17, and, uh, but we have a couple that will be staying here. Uh, David and Anna will be in the area. And some have been asking, well, what, what can we do to help them? And um, several of you would like to spend some time with them, have them over for dinner, and we'd like to say that you're welcome to do that if you'd like to. Um, but we also want to recognize that they have school and we don't want them to be out every day of the week. And so what we've done is we've set aside Fridays and Mondays. If, if you'd like to have them over something, that's perfectly fine, and I'm sure they would love that. If they're not able to, they'll let you know, but you can ask them. But we're going to try to keep that just the Fridays and Mondays. That way they can focus on their work and their schoolwork as well. So... Um, if you're looking for those opportunities, you can catch them while we're gone, but uh, those will be the times that we do that. Anyway, I just want to thank you for your prayers, and, and I just want to thank you for be being the church that you are, uh, for making this possible for us, but also um, just for the strength of the leadership that we have here among our elders, our deacons, the people here in this church. Um, I'm, I'm able to go away for about eight weeks, and, and really I'm not, I'm not worried about the state of the church while I'm gone. Uh, I know that you're in good hands, and so I'm just so thankful for those that are taking on different responsibilities who will be preaching and, and doing everything that needs to be done, and uh, thankful for Jared as well, who's been uh, handling things and going to be handling things on, uh, in the office, as well as here in the services with, with the elders. So thank you for everything. Let's turn our attention to God's Word. Let's continue our worship and... Uh, let's see what he has to say for us. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord of the Word and ask for his blessing on this time. Father in heaven, we, we do just thank you. We thank you for your word in which you teach us about life. You teach us about following you. You teach us about uh, ourselves and the sin that ensnares us and how we can worship you, how we can find you, how we can know you. As we continue looking at how Jesus is greater than and see how that impacts all of life, 
through the book of Colossians, we, we just pray that you'd help us to understand these things, help us to comprehend, first of all. But I pray that our hearts would be softened and so that as we hear these words, that our minds would engage with it, that we would actually listen, and, and then our, that our hearts would be changed as we see sin in our lives and as the Spirit illuminates um, the meaning of the Word and, and illuminates sin in our own hearts that needs to be dealt with. And so please change us. Please mold us into the image of Jesus Christ as He is the perfect image of you. It's in your name we pray and ask these things and ask for your blessing on this time. Amen. Several years ago, I read an autobiography by Solomon Northup called 12 Years a Slave. I was coming back to that and looked at it a little bit. And you know, he tells the account of the first days in the cotton fields. And he, he writes this. He says, in the latter part of August begins the cotton picking season. At this time, each slave is presented with a sack. A strap is fastened to it, which goes over the neck, holding the mouth of the sack breast high, while the bottom reaches very nearly to the ground. The hands are required to be in the cotton field as soon as it's light in the morning, and with the exception of 10 or 15 minutes, which is given them at noon to swallow their abundance of cold bacon, they are permitted to be a moment, they're not permitted to be a moment idle until it's too dark to see. And when the moon is full... They oftentimes labor till the middle of the night. They do not dare to stop even for dinner, nor return to their quarters, however late it may be, until the order to halt is given by the driver. This done, the labor of the day is not yet ended by any means. Each one must then attend to his respective chores. One needs the mules, another feeds the swine, another cuts the wood, another and so forth. And besides, the packing is all done by candlelight. Finally, at a late hour, they reach the quarters, sleepy and overcome with a long day's toil. Then a fire must be kindled in the cabin, the corn ground and the small hand mill and supper and dinner for the next day in the field prepared. All that, all that is allowed to them is corn and bacon, which is given out at the corn crib and smokehouse every Sunday morning. Each one receives as his weekly allowance three and a half pounds of bacon and corn enough to make a pack of meal. That is all. No tea, no coffee, no sugar, and with the exception of a very scanty sprinkling now and then, no salt. Master Epps' hogs were fed on shelled corn. It was thrown out to the slaves, however, by the ear. The former, he thought, would fatten themselves if would, would be found fatter by shelling and soaking it in the water. The latter, perhaps, if treated in the same manner, might grow too fat for labor. Master Epps was a shrewd calculator, and he knew how to manage his own animals, drunk or sober. You know, Northup was a slave that had been, a black man who had been born free in the north. He was kidnapped, shipped to the south. He was sold into slavery. And the picture he presents of American slavery and subjection to a master is, is unfortunately an accurate picture of what millions of men and women endured in our country for, for too long. In a, in a land that celebrates our freedom, it, it also is unfortunate that this is typically the picture that we get when we hear some of the words that we find from Scripture today, when we talk about subjection, when we talk about submitting ourselves to one another, that's the picture that we get oftentimes of what it means to submit to someone. When most of us hear the word submission, our minds immediately are taken to scenes like those described in Northup's biography. Scenes of ruthless husbands that treat their, their wives cruelly. We think of parents who abuse their children who are cowering in submission dreading that dad will strike next or mom will scream at them into humble obedience. And in the workplace, some of us dread our bosses 
And we go from day to day in fear of whether we will even have a job tomorrow. And so we submit or else. The submission is seen as a bad word in our society. It's seen as a bad word in our culture. It's no wonder that by default, people assume the worst about government. People assume the worst about our officials. In our culture, it celebrates disobedience in the face of our police force. Homes are are torn apart because too many individuals in our society are convinced that they possess freedom with absolutely no limits. They have rights that can't be violated. And so many in the church today consider this word submission, and, and that's all we see. We see this unhealthy burden that our culture has finally put aside and in, in celebration of unhindered personal liberty. Now, I want you to understand, I love freedom. I, I love my country. I love the rights that we share. But, but I want us to understand that our indulgence, I believe, in our indulgence, I believe that our generation is missing out on the true freedom that God's Word talks about and a true sense of fulfillment and purpose that can only be achieved and enjoyed and understood fully when we understand the biblical concepts of humility and submission to one another. Now, we've seen in Colossians that Jesus Christ is greater than. He's greater than everything else. He's preeminent. He's superior to all things. And this is partly why people were astonished when Jesus came into this world. And when Jesus came into the world, People are astonished that, that rather than, than see this, this God step into human form and then demand worship from everyone and demand complete obedience, He actually came and He submitted Himself. He bowed in, in submission to the Father. He became a man and He came to the earth not to be served, but to serve. And, and listen to this well-known description of Christ's humility in Philippians 2. He said, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not consider equality, count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the One who is greater than submitted Himself He submitted Himself to the will of the Father. He submitted Himself to His earthly parents. He submitted to Roman authorities. And in all of this, the One who is greater than, He showed us how to walk. And He showed us how to put to death the sins that weigh us down and destroy us. He showed us how to put off wrong attitudes and words. And He showed us how to put on right attitudes and words of kindness and love. He showed us how to put on peace and put in peace and to put in the Word of Christ so that our hearts could be His home. And all of these things that Colossians has been teaching us, Jesus demonstrated as He lived it out in humility and submission. And He showed us how to live, on, live life on purpose. And that brings us to Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and following where we discover being family on purpose and working on purpose. Now, Ephesians 5, we've talked about how Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3 are these two parallel passages. You read both side by side, and you can tell that Paul was thinking some very similar thoughts, and he was echoing what he had written to the other church. 
In one epistle, he's talking about the theology of the church and, and, and Christ's relationship with the church. And in Colossians, he's talking about the theology of Jesus' preeminence. And he takes both of those doctrines and he says this is how it applies to real life. And he shows how those two doctrines come, come together and, and they, they impact our worship and they impact our walk and they impact our family. And so we have these two parallel passages that, that uh, in many ways, the, the same principles are laid out with a, a slightly different emphasis But last week, we discovered a very close parallel between these two. In both Colossians and Ephesians, Paul discusses the Christian walk. In both passages, he stresses the importance of being controlled by the Holy Spirit as we submit ourselves to God's Word. And then listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. I just want to see some of this parallel. He says in Ephesians 5, "...addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart." Now listen to Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Sound familiar? Then it continues in Ephesians, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of our reverence for Christ. And again, back in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And I'd like to suggest to you that the theology of Jesus' relationship with the church and the theology of the preeminence of Jesus come together and we live it out in this context. As we walk out the doctrine of Jesus being greater than, all of this calls us to do everything in His name. Everything must be lived out with thankful hearts and in light of who He is. But included in this, especially when it comes to relationships, is what Ephesians 5.21 says calls submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that word submission... It comes from a Greek word, hupotasso, which if you break it apart and put, it, put the different parts of the word together, it basically means to, to, to line up underneath something. In a military sense, it would indicate ranking beneath someone. As Christians, it is our calling, it's your calling to submit to one another, to line yourself up underneath other people. A synonym to this would be humility. It is counting others as more significant than myself. Now, there are several passages that talk about wives submitting to their husbands in the Bible and children submitting to their parents. We'll get to some of those. But, but don't miss this very important aspect of our passage and the parallel in Ephesians chapter 5. As we talk about submitting, we oftentimes think of these passages and think, okay, yeah, the wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. Children are supposed to obey and submit to their parents. But the overall uh, uh, context of the entire passage is an entire passage of submission. Mutual submission is one of the marks of being filled with the Holy Spirit. But it's not just for the ladies. It's for every single one of us. This is husbands submitting to our wives. Wives to husbands. Children to parents. And parents submitting to their children. The passage lays it out, lays it out there, but, but the next several verses are going to detail what that looks like and, and how we are called to submit within each of those groups that we belong to. How we're called to put ourselves under the other. 
And submission is each person living for the other. Submission is each person dying daily for the other person. And I'd like to suggest to you that that submission is voluntary, yielded, voluntarily yielding to one another in our love for each other. So before we jump to the specifics in the passage, maybe it will be helpful just to consider briefly what submission is not. Note, note that submission is not the same thing as obedience. They're related, but they're not, they're not identical. Many times submission calls for obedience, but they're not the same thing. Children are called to obey their parents. It's part of how God designed submission for children. But that obedience, it requires a voluntary yielding of themselves out of their love for their mom and dad. Submission doesn't mean unqualified male authority. Wives submitting to their husbands does not mean that husbands have absolute power and authority no matter what he says. Sometimes husbands lead their families right into sin and submission sometimes means respectfully taking a stand and saying, this isn't right. I, I can't follow you there. But wives submitting to their husbands, it includes a voluntary yielding to the leadership of the head of their home, the husband, and yielding in a way that assists him in being the man and the leader that God has called him to be. I didn't tell my wife I was going to do this, so I'm going to order ice cream. But uh, we were having a conversation earlier last week. And uh, there's some stuff going on in my own life that wasn't right. And, and Angie came to me and said, what's going on with this? And, and in her submission to me as the head of the home, she recognized that my walk at that moment wasn't what it was supposed to be. That there were some things that were lacking. And so because she loves me and because she wanted what was best for me, she came to me and said, what are we going to do about that? Not quite those words, but they were, they were kind words. They weren't, yeah, I'm not implying that she was, I'm going to get myself in big trouble now, aren't I? <laughs> Point is, we'll keep going, is that what you said? Yeah, I'm dig digging, is that what you're saying? The point is, is that submission sometimes means doing the hard thing and going to the other person and seeking what's absolutely best for them. Submission does not mean inferiority. We sometimes think that submission means that I'm, I'm recognizing that I'm less significant than the other person. But that is different than in humility, counting others as more significant as yourself. Submission does not say I'm worthless or I'm worthless. Submission says I voluntarily consider you as more important than myself. I consider what you need as what is best and what is best for you. And, and it is more important to me than what I need and what I want for myself. I volunteer it. That is not a state of equality or inequality. That is a state of humility. Again, remember how Jesus voluntarily yielded Himself to the authority and the leadership of His own parents. God ranked Himself under a carpenter and a woman that was probably barely old enough to be his mother. Old enough to be his older sister even. Was Jesus inferior to Joseph and Mary? No. Was Jesus less significant? Certainly not. Yet he counted them as more significant than himself. That is submission. That is biblical humility. And even within the Trinity, we find that the persons of the Trinity, that they submit to one another. Submission does not 
equal inferiority or inequality, but it does mean that individuals within a relationship accept different roles and different functions, and each person yields voluntarily in order to provide what is absolutely best for the other person. So often I hear people excuse themselves and they say, I I can't submit to him if you only knew. I, I can't love her like that. You don't know what she... I can't obey them. They are so... None of that matters. You serve Christ. You honor Him. You Being filled with the Holy Spirit means that we submit to one another. End of story. So let's take a look at how we fit into this concept. Let's start off with Ephesians chapter... Chapter uh, 3, verse 8, excuse me, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Like in Ephesians, Paul begins with wives. He says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, he's much briefer here in Colossians than he was in Ephesians, but the concept is the same. Just like the church is called to submit to Jesus as the head of the body of Christ, wives are called to submit to their husbands who are the head of the home. And again, I'd like to propose to you that biblical submission is a voluntary recognition of another person where I put their needs and their desires ahead of my own. Submission means that a wife pours herself out willingly in order to complete her husband. And it involves sacrifice on a wife's part in order to help her her husband, excuse me, on the wife's part in order to help make her husband whole and their relationship whole. I love how Pastor Brian Chapel puts this. He says, God intends for each wife to complete complement her husband so that together they fulfill God's expectations for their lives more completely than either could separately. The wife fulfills a redemptive purpose in the home, enabling each person more fully to know and be what the Savior desires by submitting herself in love for the good of another. Later he writes, perhaps nothing is more key in the process than remembering that the goal is helping a spouse be what God intends. A wife who is devoted to making a husband what she intends indicates that she does not love her husband for what he is, but for what she wants to make him. I stumbled over that one. Let me repeat that. A wife who is devoted to making a husband what she intends indicates that she does not love her husband for what he is, but for what she wants to make him. A wife who marries with the intention of reforming her husband rarely loves him deeply. Instead, she delays giving her whole heart to him until after he reflects the perfection of her makeover. And thus she is forever deprived of oneness with her spouse as he is in the present. A reforming wife dedicates herself to making a man in her image. A biblical wife gives herself to God, allowing Him to use her in developing His image in her husband. That is what biblical submission looks like. Ladies, submission is a voluntary voluntary placing oneself under another for the good of the other. And what again is the primary motivation for you to submit to your husband as to the Lord it is not because your husband has already arrived right all you ladies can probably tell me he's definitely not 
It's not because he's arrived. And yes, you may be in a marriage where your husband needs a little bit more fixing up to do, but you submit to him because you love Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who is greater than. You place yourself under him because God has called you to be a picture of his own glorious bride. Living submissively, it's hard work. I think every woman in here that's married knows that submitting to their spouse is a challenging, a challenging endeavor. Endeavor. It's hard work. It's important that we recognize for all of us that submission is a choice. We choose to submit, be submissive or not to be. And so we must take every thought captive, refuse to entertain thoughts that would promote an unsubmissive spirit. And I also want to encourage you to watch your language. Be careful how you speak to and about your husband because your words can drive him away from you or they can build him up and encourage him toward being the leader that God wants him to be. Well, then God turns his attention to husbands. In verse 19, he moves on and he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, we've seen, again, that it's not only wives that are to submit to their husbands, but also husbands that are, as we submit to one or another, that are submitting to their wives just looks a little bit different with different roles and different functions. This is part of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, it shows us that what it looks like for us, for the husband to submit to his wife. Husbands are called to submit to their wives by loving their wives. Now, you may say, I, I love my wife. I, I tell her that once a month. Or once or twice a day. I have affection for her. I care about her. And then too often, we, we, just, we justify ourselves and, and we say that we love our wives. And we paint a distorted picture of what we think that love looks like. Maybe, maybe it's your own parents who painted that distorted picture and you're trying to, to love your wife in the same way that you saw in those wrong patterns. Maybe it's something you're watching on TV. It's left a twisted view or some magazine, GQ, Sports Illustrated, that told you what it means to love your wife. Ephesians 5 makes it really clear by, by giving us this perfect example. He says, love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Okay, now man, I, let's just forget the heroics for a minute, okay? We, we talk about loving our wives as Jesus loved the church. And what's the first thing that goes to our mind? I'd take a bullet for her. I believe that many of us would, would die for our wives. If someone came into your home, you would be the one that puts yourself between, between the attacker and your wife. And you would do what needs to be done. And, and that's good and that's right. That's what Jesus did for the church, right? But gentlemen, when Jesus gave Himself up for the church, I believe He did so much more than just die. Giving yourself up for your bride, it means dying daily. It means living for your wife. And men, there are dishes at the end of the day and her, her, her feet hurt too. Even more importantly, your wife longs for you. She longs for oneness in the marriage. Not just for your physical embrace, but to hear your voice. To know that you treasure her. She longs that you would listen to what she thinks. 
to hear about her day. Sometimes giving yourself for her, it means that you put down the TV remote, you put away the phone, and you sit down with your wife and you just listen to what makes her tick. You study your wife. You learn who she is. You put aside your pride. You put aside your needs. You put aside your own wants. And, and we think that being willing, we think that we'd be willing to die for our wives, but men, how often do we really live for our wives on a daily basis? Now understand that Jesus' example of giving himself for his bride, it culminated with his death, but it began with him sacrificing all the riches of heaven and stepping into our world. The call to love your wife as Christ loved the church is a call to die to yourself daily. It's a call to sacrifice. It's a call to submission. Seeking what is absolutely best for her and voluntarily choosing it. That means giving up your throne in your home so that you can wash your wife's feet. Now back to Colossians. We're given here a a great pointer. He, he, He concludes and he says, do not be harsh with your wives. One of the ways that you can hurt your wife more easily than anything else is by being harsh, by being abrasive. The, the word means bitterness. And you see, God, God made women different than men. Praise God, right? One of the ways that you can hurt your wife more easily than anything else is by being harsh. You see, men, men tend to let things roll off. We're like ducks in the water. It just kind of rolls off of our backs. We say what we think and then we move on and it's done. And we forget about it. We, we have an argument. We go to bed thinking everything's resolved. We wake up in the morning. It's a new day, right? And your wife's going, something's not right. They still feel it. Women tend to absorb things more like a sponge. And those harsh words, they saturate the soul. And they stay for a long time. John MacArthur, he writes, Paul tells his husbands not to call their wives honey and then act like vinegar. He continues and says, they must not display harshness of temper or resentment toward their wives. They are not to irritate or exasperate them, but rather to provide loving leadership in the home. Many of us as husbands, we live out our married lives just hoping for the best. We give no thought to the particular needs our wife may have, how she's different from ourselves, and how she's different from others. We give no thought to the kind words which will make her grow or what the right time might be for a special amount of tenderness and compassion. Many of us as husbands, we live out our married lives just just hoping for the best. And we give no thought We give no thought to the other things. We give no thought to the particular needs our wives may have and how she's different. Men, God, God gave you your, your bride. And so cherish her. Lead her. And submit to her. And let us learn to love our wives sacrificially as Jesus did for the church. His bride. He continues in verse 20, and he goes on with children. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And essentially, the word obey, it means to follow orders or to do what you are told. And so when mom 
When mom uh, says clean your room, what does it mean? It means what it says. Clean your room. When dad says, no, you can't watch that TV show, what does it mean? It means obey. Don't watch the TV show. If you live in your parents' home and you are still dependent upon them to live and to survive, then the first part of what this passage teaches is that God called you to obey your parents. Now, the world teaches us that, that we should be able to do things our way. The world teaches you that the, your feelings and your self-esteem are more important than your obedience. And the world teaches that you, your parents don't know what they're talking about. They're stupid. They're old. How could they know what it's like to, to live in a world where you have homework and, and have relationships and trying to find the right friends? The world says your parents are old. They're stupid. They're ignorant. So don't listen to them. What does the Bible teach? Here in Ephesians, uh, excuse me, in Ephesians, he gives us the first reason why God wants us to obey our parents. He says, for this is right. And here in Colossians 3.20, he gives an even clearer picture and says, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. And notice that this passage does not say, it does not say obey your parents because they're always right. Parents are going to make mistakes. Sometimes they're going to, they punish too harshly. Sometimes they're going to sin and make some serious mistakes. Sometimes they're going to be bad parents. And you can probably give some examples of that, of them being bad parents. But Ephesians doesn't tell you to obey your parents because they're the best parents in the world. And Colossians doesn't tell us to obey unless they really mess up. It says, in everything. And we are called to obey because God says it's right. And he turns his attention to parents. And he says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I, I grew up on Star Wars and there's a classic scene at the end of one of the original movies where a, um, a duel takes place between a father and his son. Throughout that sequence, the father continually taunts his son. He manipulates his son. He uses other family members to inflame his son's rage. And I think that most of us, we we live in these nice Christian homes, and the temptation when we read this passage and the command like we find here in Colossians is to quickly dismiss what Colossians says because we picture the verb provoke and we assume that that's just something that evil Sith lords do when they're trying to turn their sons to the dark side. But that's not the case. Whether, whether your child is four months old, four years old, 14 years old, or 40 years old, all of us as parents must be cautious lest we provoke our children, both the ones that are living in our homes as well as our grown children. The word provoke, it means to stir up. In Ephesians, he uses a different word that means to provoke to anger. So how do we do that? What does it look like to provoke our children? Uh, and we don't we don't typically you know sit in the living room and you know poke them until they just flip out. I mean sometimes we do that too, but what does it look like when we provoke our children? What does it look like to stir them up and discourage them? Let me give a few broad strokes and I'll let you fill in the details. You know, oftentimes we bear we we bear authority and we demand submission, but we're not willing to submit ourselves to our children. Remember the entire passage is about submission and then doing everything in a way that recognizes that Jesus is the one that is greater than. And sometimes we demand of our children. 
But sometimes, um, we, we, sometimes we demand submission from our children, but we are not willing to seek what's best on their behalf. And so often we consider ourselves as more significant than our children rather than the other way around. We can provoke our children by demanding love that requires sacrifice, but seeking our own self-interests. We provoke by demanding respect at the expense of personal dignity. We humiliate our kids. Fathers easily pound their children with harsh words rather than with gentleness and with grace. We can discipline not with firm authority, but out of anger and with an explosive temper. We could just as easily provoke our children by calling for obedience, but not demonstrating consistency in how we discipline. And we can provoke our children by disciplining them, not with firm authority, but out of anger, like I said. And sometimes we provoke them not by setting any boundaries at all. Solomon, Solomon told us that he who spares the rod hates his child. Those are deep words. They penetrate. You see, to provoke your child is to irritate them beyond measure, whether they know they're being irritated or not. And it can go from the extremes of both sides. Extreme discipline and no discipline. It means to ride the brakes and to exasperate your children. Doing these things does not reflect biblical submission, which is our call that we are to be demonstrating as parents. He continues and he goes on with servants. Briefly, let's continue to look at these last two categories. It was interesting that in Colossians, unlike Ephesians, Ephesians spends a lot of time, it's really brief on the wives, and then he spends a lot of time on on what it means to love our wives as as Christ loved the church. He spends a lot of time on children and quite a bit of time on parents. And, um, and, And... but in Colossians, he just gives each one of those just one verse. And then he spends five, four or five verses on, on what, it, what it looks like for servants. Um, perhaps, perhaps the Colossian church has had a, a large group of, of people composed of the working class, of the slaves in their, of their day, and they are particularly struggling with these issues. Now understand that slavery in the Roman Empire, uh, although it was an ownership of another individual, it was not the same thing as we typically picture of slavery. It had the potential to be, but, but, it, but it wasn't quite the same thing. Uh, there's, there's probably a closer parallel to slavery in ancient Roman Empire to what we deal with every day when we go to work and we deal with the boss, when we have manager, when Tammy comes to the office. Right? What's that? We know at least uh, one slave in this church whose name was Onesimus who had run away from his master, Philemon. There's a whole book of the Bible that's addressed to his master. And Philemon, Onesimus was encouraged to go back. So maybe there was a lot more like him. But we think about slavery a bit differently than those, that the Romans world, world, those in the Roman world did. But this passage applies very easily to, to those in our culture who have a boss, to a manager. And the parallels aren't exact, but the principles are the same. And as we learn to submit one another, ourselves to one another, in the workplace, these verses really hit home. Look at verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving 
the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. I'm just going to sum up some of the main points here. Number, Number one, obedience is more than what you do when your boss is watching. It includes the respect that you show when no one else is around because you know who your true master is. Number two, our work is ultimately to be done to honor Christ, not men. So what you do, Paul tells us, do it with all your heart. Third, our our reward ultimately comes from Christ. He is the one who's greater than our earthly bosses. And so it's Him that we serve. And it's Him that we should seek to honor, knowing that our reward from Him far exceeds whatever wages that you're going to earn from your earthly masters and your employers. God also holds us accountable. Number four, God holds us accountable. So do your work whether your boss is watching or not because we know that our heavenly master is always well aware of our work and even our attitudes. Our passage concludes with a word to earthly masters. And again, in today's culture, this applies greatly to those of you who are managers, bosses, have authority over someone else. Uh, Colossians teaches us, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Remember that this entire passage is in the context of doing everything in a way that honors the Lord and in the context of submitting ourselves to one another. It's not just about wives submitting to their husbands, but about husbands submitting to their wives. The, the roles are different and how we, we submit to one another doesn't always look the same, but the Spirit-filled life leads us to submit to one another. And in the same way, slaves are to submit to their masters by obedience that is wrapped in respect, consistency, and goodwill. And masters are called to submit to their servants. That, that's, a, that's a concept that, that probably blew their minds, wasn't it? Masters, submit to your slaves. What? They, they work for me. I'm, not, I'm supposed to submit to them. You're supposed to seek what is absolutely best for them. And so masters are called to submit to their servants also in a way that that is respectful and fair. And just as there was an ultimate reason for slaves to obey their masters, there's an ultimate reason for masters to submit to their slaves with respect and goodwill. Masters serve the same God as their believing servants. And just as God rewards, He also judges. And so we are to know that we are accountable to the same God. And those who manage and employ and give orders must remember that any, any higher standing or station in this life gives us no reason to think that we shall have a higher standing or station in heaven because of it. God is impartial. And we all stand before Him, the One who is our Master in heaven. And all of us serve Him and hold no higher ground because of a position that we have achieved or been given here on earth. So let us submit to one another. Many of us, as we close, many of us have some difficult circumstances we're in. Many of you have a difficult circumstances in the home. You have a hard husband. You have a wife that's difficult. Many of you dislike your job and you come home every day feeling beat and you feel worn out. But here's the great encouragement for all of us that God has not left us in the dark regarding our purpose. God gives us tools to work with for our home and for the workplace. 
that we need that we need in daily life that we can reflect his magnificence every day in the way that we live out the theology of Jesus being the one who is greater than if we remember who the judge is the one who rewards the one who is impartial then he will be honored in the way that we worship him whenever wherever he puts us each and every single day father we thank you we thank you once again that the theology of the preeminence of Jesus isn't just something for the books. It's not just something for systematic theology classes to be discussed and debated and, and, and prodded as, a, as a, philosoph- a philosophy. It's not just about big words. But it, it impacts life in so many ways. It impacts what we put to death in our lives. It impacts what we put off, what we put on, what we put in, and how we make our heart a home for our Savior. It impacts our family and our workplace. And Jesus being greater than, it, 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 does, it impacts all of life. And so Lord, it's my prayer that as, as we continue to see how Colossians teaches us how to live out this, this doctrine of the preeminence of Jesus, that He's superior, that He has to be number one in everything, I, I pray that each one of us would see those areas where, where we're not allowing Your Son to be number one in our hearts, in our minds in our work, in our family. I pray that above all, that we would learn to submit to Him. That we would learn to obey Him. To honor Him. Even as we submit to one another in the relationships that You've given to us. And so as we go out from here, please show us those ways that we're maybe not living this out. And honor Yourself in us, we pray. Amen.